Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I'm not going to stand here, present some egghead scientific argument based on fact. Science is a liar sometimes. The great impasse has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. They think deep thoughts, and with no more brains than you have. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, do you know if Roger Goodell likes apples? No, not at all. I barely know who Roger Goodell is, but oh, only because no, of you. No, but, but do you think he likes apples, maybe? I would like, assume so. Most people, most normal people um, uh, are on this, somewhere between the neutral and like uh, uh, for... <laughs> For apples. For apples. So, so, okay, just to confirm, you, you say you think he does like apples. Yeah, given absolutely no information about this, this uh, you know, base rates, who, do, who says, like, I hate apples? So how does he like them apples? <laughs> Bill Belichick, third-string quarterback, 27 nothing over the Houston Texans Thursday night. One of the great, great nights. Is this why you're in such a good mood? Yeah, one of the reasons. I've been I'm David it. Pizarro from Cornell University. How's, how about them apples? Um, I love how um, somehow you think that this is what people tune in to Very Bad Wizards to hear. They want to hear me gloating about the Patriots' success. I think if we did a survey of what people like most about the show, it's when I start talking about Boston sports and caring. You could have the Washington Post do that survey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> The statistical <laughs> significance, the power, the statistical power, I guess, was, was uh, low. Very, but very good. Um, yeah, I know, I know my shit. So we have four topics to get to. We're going to try to keep a fairly tight time frame on the topics, although I think it'll be hard for, especially the last one. The first is one that you don't even know about, but just happened to my daughter yesterday, and it sort of raised an uh, interesting ethical issue. So I want to get your opinion about that. The second is the unraveling of your profession of social psychology. <laughs> there was a big controversy in the last week in social psychology, right? Um, there was. I'm, um, from now on, I'm just calling myself a psychologist. Not a social psychologist. Like yeah, soon it'll be like the Freudians are like the most respected people. <laughs> yeah. <It's>, yeah. <laughs> uh, Almost. Third, we're going to talk about a really interesting paper that could lead to further, more in-depth discussion. But we, I just sort of came across it by accident, and it's it's actually in. It's a, it seems like what a what a good psychology paper would be. Um, although I, I haven't done a rigorous data <laughs> analysis of it 
I want to check your browser history to see if you've actually if you've actually downloaded the paper. It's on my browser right now. <laughs> and and and, uh, and then fourth, in response to a number of massive, requests, massive demand, massive demand. We're going to break down the Patriots' win over the Texans. <laughs> Uh, the dismantling. No, uh, we're going to talk about Mr. Robot season two and especially the finale, which has been, it's fair to say, a little polarizing or at least it doesn't inspire the same sort of unanimous. What's the word? Accolades. Accolades. Should we should we put that sort of afterwards? I mean, we'll just say this is the last thing we're discussing and then... Yeah. And in yeah. fact, here's the thing about even for those people who are critical of Mr. Robot, I think a big part of that is a function of having to wait a week between episodes. And I, my guess is that, mis- that season two is better binge-watched than... Yep, I'm gonna re I'm gonna rewatch the whole thing. Yeah, in a binge as soon as, as, soon as I, I am I too, and I'm actually looking forward to that. Even though, you know, I have some issues maybe with season two, but we'll talk about that. Right. But but yeah, so if you haven't seen Mr. Robot yet, this is you're kind of you might be lucky, but you <laughs> need to see it and then listen to us talk about it. Right, we'll make it clear when we start talking about yeah. it. Yeah. All right, so here's let's talk the first topic which again you don't know about Uh, can i just say for the record it always makes me really nervous when i don't know what you're going to introduce so well this is fairly you're you're like a you're a wild card you're like charlie (laughs) on it's always sunny in philadelphia it's just (laughs) it could be a a riddle about dicks and cucumbers (laughs) right it could just just yeah um actually this is much more serious and much less dick oriented than normal so or yeah maybe almost entirely not dick oriented so my daughter is at a rough start to seventh grade she um in the first week her two best friends at the school left the school for various reasons um but the one really good thing that was was happening for her was she landed the lead role in a play that and this is a you know it's a performing arts magnet school so she she was playing the part of scout in to kill a mockingbird right i was gonna guess you know boo radley (laughs) (laughs) so so i i was working with her on her lines um helping her memorize her lines and I sort of noticed that as a, we were going through it, that a lot of the really bad racist stuff, including whenever any character says the N word, that was cut out of right. of the play. And I sort of, at the time, as I'm working with her, I'm sort of complaining about this. Like, this is a play about racism, and this is kind of a sanitized version of it. You know, and I had some problems with that, and she's like, "Yeah, but we're middle schoolers, you know." And uh, you know, really, <laughs> so right, not her, all not all children were raised like yeah. like you raised me, Dad. <laughs> and yeah, I had some sort of artistic problems with it, but her main concern was learning her lines, performing the part well. This was a big deal for her, and it was like I said, like in a year where nothing has gone well so far, like right. this is the, this is the one thing. So, can I ask a quick clarification question? Yeah. Um, 
was it also sort of toned down? I mean, because imagine that you remove the racial tension, like it's still about a, a, a rape accusation. Was it Even that-, that was taken out. So the uh, rape so it was just so, sanitizing. Yeah. So it was right. like that anytime they were talking about rape, it was they would change it to sort of harm or tickling. Something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Thursday, lie comes home. She's very upset because. The theater teacher said that the playwright has demanded that they don't like sanitize it like they're sanitizing it and demands that they have to say the N word. Right. They have to they have to use that language. Uh, The the, the play, the the, I don't know, like the the whole moral point of the play is diluted if the people seem much less racist than they are in the book and the, and 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 the play adaptation of it. So we won't allow them to do the play like that. And playwrights have, you know, they're not like screenwriters where people just tell them to shut the fuck up. They own their plays. Right, the rights. Wait, so yeah. so who who is the playwright? I don't know cuz I didn't know, I didn't even know it was a play. Like Harper Lee. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It wasn't uh, Harper Lee. Now, Friday, the theater teacher has a decision, and this is what I wanted to ask you about because I think it's very sort of interesting ethical question. Obviously, my daughter wanted them to decide that they would do the play, and they would do it, and they would you know say the words that are in the play, and that that's you know if people handle that maturely, and you're, you know you're doing to kill a mockingbird. They'd already blocked out the play. Everyone had memorized their lines. Everything is ready to go. It's actually part of a a, a larger p- competition within Harris County. And Friday, so this is just yesterday, she finds out that the teacher is not going to do it. She's not even going to ask the p- principal. She's just going to abandon the play. Wow. And so, of course, wow. my daughter's been completely devastated. She thinks, like, seventh grade is just the worst. And so I was wondering, like, what you, like, what would you do if you were that, that the, obviously she fucked up in the sense that she shouldn't, this shouldn't have come out now. Like, this is something that should have right. been reckoned with earlier. But for whatever reason, that didn't happen. And so... Right. Give if you're in that situation now, or say you're the principal and the theater teacher says, "Look, I had cut some of this stuff out, but I insist that we use it." What do you do? I mean, so so I don't know how this stuff tends to work, right? So I I didn't know, for instance, that you couldn't just get the rights to the play and and make changes. I'm curious as to how they even found like you know what what caused this to to become an issue. There are rules when it comes to theater. There are rules that the that the playwright leaves about what you can and can't do with the play in terms of adapting it. And probably my guess is that one of the his rules was they have to actually say the n word because it sounded like from the way my daughter described it, they could cut it for time because there's no way they could do the whole play. They couldn't not have people say the n word, precisely I guess because of its. It's such a racially charged right, slur. Right, like as you say, it's that's the point of the whole. That's it's uh, a play about yeah. racism. It makes no sense if the characters aren't racist. Right. So, so I, you know, I have, I like, I'm torn about this because obviously the solution is, you know, I wouldn't pick this as a play for for seventh grade. But uh, that aside, now you're left. I I can't blame the 
um, the teacher too much for not wanting sort of, you know, little seventh graders to spew the N word <laughs> um, just because, you know, I mean, there's a weird there's a there's a, a weird effect where people might hear it and and they hear it coming out of someone's mouth and they don't they attribute it kind of to them to the to the person and not to the to the situation and all that you you just might want to protect kids from having to just like you might want to protect them from doing a play in which they have to like act out violent or acts or or do something kind of otherwise that you wouldn't want seventh graders to be doing that that said oh man you, I, I would want to bite the bullet, print out an explanation. Yes, on the front of the program, right, and say that we, we thought it was super important for kids to realize how hurtful that was at the time, but nonetheless not hide how hurtful it was. And then you know you even make some like some attempt at having a discussion amongst the kids right. I mean, about, that's, about this. A, you know, you, it, it could be an opportunity for dialogue. It could be an opportunity yeah. for but the thing that we love so much is when people are brought together and to try to just get right. other people's perspectives. I, I, another thing I think, yeah, is like it would have been nice. I mean. You know, it's obviously easier said than done, so I'm not going to judge that particular teacher. But bring bring in the parents of the kids, and especially if there are African American kids and parents, are, and actually yeah. have Plenty. a discussion and make uh, make a decision, sort of as as a group, right? Yeah. Like I and 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 especially with the African American parents, they might actually feel. I suspect they'd feel strongly that they ought to keep it in, right? Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, so I don't know. Yeah, so I don't know about these particular parents, right. but that's what I would think too. I, I would have been happier, frankly, if at least the principal. Like, I, I could understand it more if the principal just said, "Look, there's too much I have to deal with right now to get angry letters every day right. from from right. parents about this." Like, I don't know. So, but but I agree with you. Like this. <laughs> Like, what do you if if you're if you're doing To Kill a Mockingbird, right? And you think that that is a that is a, right. a project worth undertaking, then it seems like it shouldn't be beyond the pale at that point to really do it and to do what you can to make sure the kids behave responsibly. I I, I the the only reservation I have. So I was talking. I was taking my daughter and one of her friends home and she was saying how her brothers saw that movie jack the jackie robinson movie what was it um 42 know. you know there's a lot of n-words in that in that movie and then they were just saying it like you know because they're kids they're like right, little right, right, they're, right. they're six six fifth whatever graders like they don't they don't get it and so and they got grounded. And so there's a question. And I wonder if this sort of connects back to the discussion with Paul about the difference between boys and girls. Like right. there might be that boys at this age just can't. They just don't have the mental resources <laughs> to handle to not, like, it. Majority. Do karate kicks as they're like leaving a movie. Yeah. And like, <laughs> and, I mean, that's yeah. the only thing I can't speak to. Like, I know I, I don't think Eliza fully understood the gravity of the decision, but like, I know for sure that she could handle it, you know, and that, right. that actually it would be a good learning experience for her to really feel what's like. So I think it would have been really good for her. 
but you know, I that's my I, and I still think I would have tried to do it. At least tried. At least I, I mean, time pressure is the problem. Now they have to mount a, a totally new play, and they so that she had to make a quick decision. So getting all the parents together right. and all of that. Are they going it, for for Huck was, Finn? Huck Finn? No, they're doing Twelve <laughs> Angry Men. Oh wow! Well. So my poor daughter. <laughs> like they go from like a, a play that she's the star in to a play where there are just no women in it. I mean, she's she's like she'll probably be one of the people. But what know. if they call it Twelve Angry People and then they get a letter saying no, it has to be men? <laughs> <laughs> that would be, that'd um, be hilarious. This is actually where you know. I mean, for our listeners who are African American, like I'm curious uh, what mm-hmm. what what Absolutely. you think. Yeah. Um, and and not that I'm not curious what non African Americans think. If you um, are not African American, <laughs> just save it. In. We don't want to hear it. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's an interesting dilemma. It's it's. I I think that I would have in that position not even tried it. Um, I, I think. Yeah, <laughs> she's a young teacher. You know, this is a big learning experience. I think. Right. She like didn't really understand what the. So is she white? She is. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's an, another interesting question. Like, if she were African American, could she have gotten away right. with it, right. or not just gotten away with it, but like more likely to have I don't know the credibility to do a project like that? And if that's tr- true politically, could that is that like is that an yeah, right. There's a lot of interesting issues with this, frankly. Yeah. Like the other thing I'm thinking is, you know, I mean, it is really the case that it, at the point where you remove the racism from To Kill a Mockingbird, then what's the point of the play? But I wonder, I do wonder if the insistence on keeping the N-word rather than allowing for some other marker that would maintain the insulting nature of it without, yeah, you know. To be fair to what they had done to it, it's not like you don't get that people are racist in that town. It's just that you don't really see the depths of it or, like, you know, just how commonplace it was. But I think, and I didn't go through the whole play um, as they had had cut it or edited it, but, like, you know, it is still a black man on trial for and for harming, not raping. I mean, yeah... (laughs) I, 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 like I said, I had before any of before I even knew it was even a remote possibility that 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 they couldn't do the play. I had just sort of ethical problems with the cuts they were making, but I still think it was there. It was just in really sanitized form, and maybe Foot was right to say, "No, you you can't do that. You can't make this. You can't drain the real tension out of the play and make." Um, I wonder if they changed the lines. From busting up a shiffer robe to breaking up a dresser. <laughs> Sorry. That's actually, um, a, a very obscure line of the book. <laughs> but that's what she asks him to come inside and do, to bust up the shiffer robe. Speaking of obscure lines from books, how about Angela pulling out a line from Lolita? Um, yeah. We'll, um, we'll talk about that. Which I think is central to what's going Okay, yeah. yeah. All right, let's uh, move on to the second topic, which is... Maybe more, even more painful than the history of racism in this country. <laughs> so, I was trying to figure out like the best movie or TV metaphor for what's happening in your field right now. As like obviously, like my th- first thought was like a zombie apocalypse or 
<laughs> or just in a plain old apocalypse. Like, and this is the end where like the ground starts caving in and people starts falling down like into the pit or. Uh, I mean, I mean, here's where here's where I pull a Tamler and say this, that the the rum, rumors of the death of social psychology have been greatly exaggerated. How is right? that pulling a me? <laughs> because your primary complaint usually when we talk about um, the chilling effect of of, of like uh, free oh. speech violations is that yeah. it just doesn't happen as nearly. It's not nearly as common as everybody writes about. Like it's not yeah. like it's something that's that much of a problem. Yeah. Um. And and I think that 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 does apply here like i think this is like a small minority of people throwing rotten fruit at each other okay so let me finish my movie metaphors please (laughs) so the other thing i was thinking speaking of 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 small group of people reservoir dogs at the, the final scene you know where they're all kind of shooting each other and everyone dies yeah, um, yeah. The uh, that's a good one. The the good old Mexican standoff. Yeah, the Mexican standoff. Exactly. Then I thought just Bridget Jones's baby, that new movie, just not. <laughs> it doesn't like I, I like I don't know. Obviously, I haven't seen the movie, but just I don't know if it's that obvious. The, th- the thought, <laughs> I even the thought, like w- like of actually seeing that movie seems so devastating. And, <laughs> kind of horrifying that like that maybe that would capture but here's what i thought the best analogy would be which is pretty much every season of the wire where the tragedy of the wire of all the seasons really is is like a matter of fate right it's this clash of individual interests your incentives for promoting your own self-interest and what's right for the job. And it does seem like at the bottom of whatever issue there is, and I know you'll try to minim- minimize it, but at the, at the bottom of whatever issue there is, it's this tension between the incentives for scientists and what would count as good science. All right. So let's, why don't you describe what's been going on and then you can respond and defend yeah. your discipline. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, the, so there is a meta issue, which is all of the people involved in this are generally from my discipline. So so both the people who are trying to correct – so we're talking about the replication, right. Very pro- like the replication crisis, um, if you want to call it that, and the various methodological problems that have, that have emerged in the field of psychology in general and many social psychology results specifically. So Susan Fisk, who is the um, APS past president of the Psychological uh, Association, wrote a letter. And she wrote a letter, and it was going to go in the next issue of the, the APS Observer, which is their professional publication, in the last, I don't know, couple of years. As the criticisms of these methodologies and all the p-hacking, all the stuff that, that Tamler's always talking about, um, as, as those mounted the critiques that have been leveled against uh, particular studies and particular particular researchers um, have been mounted primarily by a group of, of individuals who who le- have been leveling these critiques on social media so twitter their blog posts to be to be fair to them i don't know where else you would do this unless you know uh, the whole point of some of the critiques is that the way that the science is currently done is problematic and if you want to get that through peer review it seems as if that's not the right venue anyway um to to mount these critiques 
so there have been pr- people pretty vocal people um uh, who have pointed out these criticisms publicly and there have been cases in which individuals have been singled out for having results that have failed to replicate people like Roy Baumeister and John Barge like big names in the field and then also people like who are not such big names but at some point people started calling these these vocal opponents of flawed methodology replication bullies and they're That was Dan Gilbert. Yeah, and the most ironic thing is that a field that has documented in-group, out-group processes so well, starting yeah. like going back to the 50s, is right now suffering from like the worst case of, of Red Sox-Yankees that I've seen. So why do you say that? So, But did you – wait, did you – you didn't say the methodological terrorists line. Yeah, so I was going to say so, – so in this letter that was to be published in APS Observer, not yet published, um, right. somebody posted a link to – to copy on Dropbox, which we'll we'll link to, and in that letter, Susan Susan Fisk basically says, "Look, people are being assholes in the way that they're the way that they're handling these problems is by taking to social media and calling out names. And I'm not going to call out names, but you know who you are. Um, you're methodological terrorists, right? <laughs> that- <laughs> Socio destructo critics or something like that. Yeah, dis- there were a destruct- lot of different labels for destructo critic. So there's a lot that 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 Fisk says that it's not unreasonable. I mean, there's, if it's a plea for people to be more like kinder to each other and, uh, but she, she lost it. I think when she said, um, basically her beef was that by posting on social media, it's unmoderated. And if you're going to like mount critiques at other scientists, it should be on a forum that is somehow peer reviewed, uh, peer reviewed or at least monitored by people in the field. Right. Um, and so her argument is that this kind of criticism is destructive and not constructive. And so she says, uh, n- not only that, but like people like us in APS have been a leader in encouraging robust methods and transparency. And but these self-appointed quote the self-appointed destructive critics' role now includes public shaming and blaming, often implying dishonesty on the part of the target and other innuendo based on unchecked assumptions. Targets often seem to be chosen for scientifically irrelevant reasons, their contrary opinions, professional prominence, or career stage vulnerability. Um, the destructo critics are ignoring ethical rules of conduct because they circumvent constructive peer review. By ethical, she means the things that keep the status quo and the establishment in place. and the It's a little, yeah, it's a little bit of Crimea River when she says that they're being picked for irrelevant reasons, such as their prominence. <laughs> From an outsider's perspective, it reads a little like you people outside the club don't get to question our methods, even if they are, you know, objectively questionable. Right. Um, you have to go through us to do that. You have to... Um, and we have to approve any criticisms that you make of our methodology and our practices. Right. And so there is there is something that you might argue where you don't want to air air the dirty laundry of of um, the, the the small critiques of your field. But there is <laughs> here's where I think it's completely misguided. So that she uses the term methodol- methodological terrorism, which everybody. I mean that's just tone deaf. She right? took that out, right? I think it's she, not going to be in the final draft. Is that right? I don't. I don't exactly know because the final draft has has not been published. So they said that it was in the in in the process of being copy edited, 
what what would you do would you take it out now if you were her i don't know this guy will post a link to it but um andrew gelman yeah pointed out like first response was methodological terrorism is when you publish a paper in a peer-reviewed journal its claim is supported by a statistically significant statistic of 5.03 and someone looks at your numbers figures out that the correct value is 1.8 and then post that correction on social media. Terrorism is when someone blows shit up and tries to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, that's kind of my sort of... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll link to Andrew Gelman's <laughs> post, which which uh, funnily does actually engage in name-calling, like uh, calling out specific people. I, I, You know, there there are two issues. One is whether or not critiques should be leveled by, you know, on social media and unmoderated forums. The other one is, should people be dicks to each other? And I actually think that the answer is obviously no, people shouldn't be dicks to each other. But I also think that many people um, who are leveling these criticisms, who are, I would say, the younger generation of, of psychologists who are trying to improve the dialogue... Some of who actually who listened to Very Bad Wizards, people like uh, Daniel Ekins and Yoel uh, is Samin, part of this. Yoel, right? Samin Vazir, um, uh, Sanjay Srivastava. I don't. I never have known them to be uh, sort of name calling and doing anything but but actually making critical comments about methods that sometimes are sparked by a particular paper, but that's. This is and this is my point, which I can I can just make simply and elegantly rather than rambling. The whole point of science is that anybody, anybody can make critiques. Yeah. That is, once you learn the methods and once you know how to do it, it doesn't matter if you're a sixteen year old prodigy in the fucking slums of Bombay or whether you are, you know, fancy professor at Princeton University, if you are right and you find a way to communicate it other people should listen right there there is it's a great leveler like this science is a great leveler so to the extent that we have to tear down the fucking guard of whatever like the the hierarchy that is allowing some people's voices to be better than others then let's do it that's what that's what the internet is about that's exactly what the internet is about and if you don't like that Daniel Akins called you out for your shitty F statistic, which to be to be completely fair, there's so many papers that I probably wrote that could be called out because we didn't know. Like we just didn't know how to do good science. To, to me, it's just like, you know what, just sh- shut up and move on and do good work. But so do good work. I th- like, Here's the problem with that is. How does that – I mean, so ideally what you're talking about is how science is supposed to work. And like, ideally if somebody figures out that you know the, your statistical power of your study was less than you thought it was or that your effect doesn't replicate, like you should be happy. Now we have a greater understanding of the truth and here we had less of an understanding, so we've moved forward. But the incentives – in the discipline don't function that way. A, there's not an incentive to produce negative results, but there's a big incentive to produce positive results. B, really being careful, unwilling to publish results that you're not absolutely confident will hold up 
that would reduce your productivity and that would harm your career. And so there's – did you see this article in The Atlantic about this model that someone ran – but uh, I guess it's Paul Smaldino and Richard McElrath, where they, they, they ran a formal model to try to show that it will always, the standards for good science, given the conditions of how this, uh, the incentive policy is set up, will always degrade to the point where you really can't trust the results from that science. So... Like everybody getting an attitude adjust, adjustment doesn't seem like is that's not going to solve this problem. The actual like from the bottom up, like this is, it actually is kind of relevant to Mr. Robot. It's like it's like the 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 whole structure has to change in a way that it would be monumental to kind to undertake, or at least there would be a lot. There's a lot of established interests that would stand against. Yeah, there, I mean, there is established interest. I mean, there, there, there are a couple of questions here. One is whether there is a way to distinguish true from false findings, given the way that we currently do science. And I think that there is. I mean, this is the whole point of, of, of these critiques has been for us to pay attention as a field more to unpublished studies, like things like the file door problem to train researchers to think about these researcher degrees of freedom and p-hacking, to not rely solely on um, the significance testing that we've been doing. And as journals actually increase their rigor in what to accept and what not to accept, which has already happened, um, there is no doubt in my mind that we will be less likely to publish false results. The thing about the incentives that you're talking about, I think, is absolutely a problem. It's a problem in every science. I think in other sciences, people have a better sense of, well, um, like, for instance, this guy, um, John Ioannidis, uh, who's published, he published a very influential paper saying that most published research results are false. Um, when you apply that to, like, medical science, I think people have a sense right away, well, that, well, that sucks, So we, but as long as we keep doing it right, we'll find out what's true because there is a truth of the matter as to whether broccoli cause cancer, causes cancer or whatever. Like, we'll, we'll find that out. I think in psychology, there's a bit more schadenfreude that's going on, which is it was all bunk to begin with, and there is no amount of fixing this because the mind is, is just not empirically available to us. I, I don't have that schadenfreude, all joking aside, because... Yeah. Social psychology results are cool. Like, yeah. they're fun. They're fun for philosophers, certainly, to work into their theories, and they're, uh, and they're fun to teach. You know, it's fun to, ha like, see a bunch of students perk up when you start showing them Milgram experiments. Right. Uh, or, you know, the... The, the phone booth study with the dime and, you know, right, and, and, right, and right. helping behaviors. I think unlike biology or medicine where we definitely have like real documented progress over a long period of time, it's less clear that we have that with psychology or if we do, it's less it's it's harder to identify for sure that we have it. Like, you can identify, look, like in 1950, 
all these people were dying of this disease and now they're no longer dying of that disease. You know, that yeah. that's pretty easy to prove, but it's harder with some of the more famous results in social psychology. It, 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 well, and that's yeah. why I think that that really the mistake has always been to to rely on a finding or a paper. And, and I think that there are I think there's a, absolutely progress has been made in understanding the mind at every level. And some of these results really are robust. It's just a fact that, for instance, dividing people into in-groups and out-groups um, makes them treat each other shittier, right? There's enough studies on that 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 holds up. And there are enough studies showing that we have um, asymmetries in the way we judge ourselves versus others. Those things hold up. But that's because we have a body of literature showing. Um, right. and, and it's hard to tell when it might hold up in this particular case or not. But I think we also overestimate the degree to which there's consensus in things like medical science. So um, if you sure. trace the history of, of like, um, is salt intake good or bad for you, right? You're going to see, like, there's just probably no consensus. Like, there's all kinds of research findings that say one thing versus another. Caffeine, the same thing. And I think that there's just a ton of those. That's why I think that the assumptions that because we have um, – you know, we can save people's lives in a way that we couldn't a hundred years ago. It's more obvious. The successes are more obvious. The uncertainty in the field of, say, nutritional science and medicine and all those things is is less salient to us. But I think it's just, you know, there was recently. What was that? Do you remember this? There was like a hoax. Pub, like some German researchers published something saying that chocolate helped you lose weight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Like that, you know, that was like a hoax to show that you can basically argue anything and get it past scientific scrutiny. And, and I, that's why I think it's not schadenfreude as much as disillusionment, maybe like losing a religion or something like that. It used to be that people would say, oh, if I just power pose, I'll be more successful. Or, <laughs> you know, what, if like I eat chocolate, I'll lose weight. And then now you're telling me that those things don't work, actually. Fuck this. I don't know what to trust anymore. Right. I, you know. But, but that doesn't stop you from, say, um, taking the advice of your doctor, right? Um, right. And, yeah. No, right. And that's... That's a good point. You don't really have to trust a social psychologist to get on in life, but you have to go to a doctor, right? right. As evidenced by our interactions. Exactly. So you don't have to trust me at all. Um, I, I think, okay, and then there's the second point that I, that I think is really important, which is, like, you're right about the incentive structure, and I think this is the growing pains that we're going through right now, is that, that incentive those incentive structures are are becoming derailed because of the great equalizer that is the internet. And I think that the minute you have now people who can read, you can post data and reply to them, to the authors, and you're, you're going to get people, say, all over the world, maybe even whose motivation is just to be a dick and take you down. But if their critique is right, we now can't shut them up. Right. Right. And so, yeah, of course, there's dicks who are who are like trying to take down, right? Like there are people who are on a takedown mission, and I think that's what Susan Fisk is pissed about, you know, destructo critics. <laughs> right, and um, she's probably right about some people, right? There probably are some bitter yeah. outsiders who are taking pleasure in it or who are being meaner than they could be about it, but it that that doesn't 
that doesn't undermine the fact they're, that there yeah, are exactly. serious problems and that a lot of these people are doing it um, for the right reasons. And even if they're not doing it for the right reasons, that the issue is still a real issue. Right. So, you know, like in other scientists, like we, we like, I don't care if Einstein discovered, you know, the, e, the equals MC squared because he was really pissed at some other scientists. Right. Like it doesn't <laughs> like it stands because he wanted to like sleep with his best friend's wife. Right. Right. Cause his mother treated him bad. <laughs> um, what's, what will become interesting though, is how the people who are seeing themselves as the rebel outsiders who are, who are um, leading the charge, People like Arbario and Yoel, who are who are leading the charge. And oh yeah, the outsider things. at the University of Toronto. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what when when they become the guard? How yeah. will they? How will they? Right. Uh, how, what res- responsibility will they carry when they are now the people that everybody listens? So the to? metaphor for that is probably Animal Farm or any movie where the outsider gains power and becomes right. exactly like the people that they they're replacing right like let's you know there are already people who are dogmatic in their bayesianism because you know (laughs) and so so we'll see they're like angela on mr robot will power transform them this is like (laughs) your arab spring and so (laughs) the, the next step is like the authoritarian leader or the just you know the anarchy or the donald trump or whatever so uh, So, you have that to look forward to (laughs) It's it re- is really funny though that like so, so much of the, the the bitterness expressed is about the fact that people can post on blogs. Yeah. I know. <laughs> like, <laughs> thank like, God Susan Fisk isn't listening to podcasts about this. It, and, and really, <laughs> the other thing is like you know this stuff with philosophy that's going on. Like we also have a fucked up incentive structure that rewards productivity, and so and that no leads and to- no ability to determine what is true or not. <laughs> Right. And no ability and like the product, you know, the, the, the pressures to be productive just means that everyone's going to do fussy little objections and counterexamples and all of that. And I've carried on enough about that. But um, but that stuff has been going that that debate has been going on for a long time, whereas it feels like social psychology, it's there's been a huge crunch precisely because of the Internet. This really come to a head in the last ten years, like or, or five years or whatever. This is something that 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 blog post by Andrew, like ten years yeah. ago, five years ago, even people barely heard of the right. Like we probably you go back right. like 2012, 2013. We're not talking about that in our podcast. You yeah. know, you know, yeah. I would have had I known yeah. about it. <laughs> no, it's true, and I think that the, that um, there it, you should read Andrew Goldman's post because he does outline a nice uh, a nice timeline of this stuff. Um, I think that social psychology wasn't until the Gladwell sort of Malcolm Gladwell sort of popularizing us um, that people started even paying that much attention to it. And and guess what? Like now that people now that it, it that is the curse of having that all that external criticism. Yeah. Um, or those eyeballs that came along with the fame. Um, and, it's it's know, all Malcolm Gladwell's fault. And he got rich off of it. No, <laughs> I mean, there's some. You all got of, rich over it, Look at right? Daryl Bem, who's in our, who was in our department, right? He was. I was actually hired on replacement money from Daryl Bem, the guy who published the ESP studies. Um, he was, as Gelman points out, the precip- one of the big precipitating factors because he published this paper on ESP that was basically like using our own methods, you know, rigorous methods, like like rigorous in you know 1998. Um, 
terms. Uh, he, he showed that ESP was possible. And to disagree with him, you had to, you had to basically abandon the validity of those techniques. So, like, You had to be a methodological terrorist to disagree with him. Exactly. This is uh, the worst metaphor in the world. <laughs> In the world, but and, the sci- and you people in power. Should- Wait, am I someone in power? I I, uh, I don't know anymore whether I'm old or young. <laughs> this is very confusing. Well, you mm-hmm. are at an Ivy League psychology. I mean, yeah, it's true. You're it's at true. the same They're, therefore institution that Robert Frank and Dirk nope. Paraboom. <laughs> Nobody knows that Cordell is an Ivy. Let's be honest. <laughs> All right. Let's take a break and we'll come back and we'll talk about our other two topics, although we've gone a little long. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. First, we're going to start talking about Mr. Robot in this segment. Um, uh, we had planned for, we said that we were going to talk about four topics, and we realized that we just got carried away talking about science and and To Kill a Mockingbird. So we're going to save the topic that we had uh, planned out for another future episode. I also think that could be a bigger episode. Like that, that, that's, yeah, that's a it big, could be its, it could be its own. Right. Yeah. right. Um, second... We had, uh, and I think we mentioned at the end of last episode, we had planned and we in fact did talk to science journalist Matt Hudson, who was kind enough to to come on and and talk to us about just what it is like being a science journalist and a variety of other issues. But we had some audio problems and we, it just wasn't going to work out. We couldn't salvage it. So un, uh, we're going to ask him to come back at a future time. Yeah, we had a whole conversation with him. Like yeah. uh, hour long conversation with them, and I think that's why you were a little easier on journalists in the last segment. Is <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, I didn't bring it up. He, he knows it was. <laughs> I I maintain. Dave, David blames everything that's going wrong with his field on science journalists. No, they're merely and one. You really cause. have from the beginning. That's yeah. something that you've done. Yeah, I think it's one cause, but it it gets to that structure of incentives that you were talking about. Um, yeah, right. And so you know, who who doesn't want to to be to get published in, in popular press? Truth. That's all I'm motivated by. Right. This is the moment at the beginning of the second segment where uh, we like to thank our listeners for all the support they've given us. Uh, the thank you so much for all the emails, uh, the reviews, the tweets. I really feel like we've 
we we're experiencing a bit of growth here. Um, we've been too. getting a steady stream of of comments, all of which we, of course, love. The Patreon supporters, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, we have uh, almost uh, two hundred Patreon supporters. We're like at one ninety five. So that's, that's between insane. now and our one hundredth episode, if we could get to two hundred Patreon supporters, that, that, would, be cool. that would be amazing. Um, and so, if you want to support us, go to. Uh, patreon.com slash very bad wizards there are other ways to support us that we have in our support page very bad slash support such as buying stuff by clicking t- through our amazon link so thank you for doing that a number of you have emailed us to tell us and sure enough it's a, it's a nice little christmas bonus Just, for us uh, got a roku using that link sweet um uh, and you can email us verybadwizards at gmail.com or tweet at us at verybadwizards at tamler at peas and yeah like us on Facebook like us on Facebook Rate review, us on us, iTunes. review us on iTunes we have yeah. we, we, got, we could do a whole we, we got a bunch of good reviews awesome reviews let's talk about it. and, yeah. and download us on, on iTunes so we can move up in the rankings <laughs> <laughs> so the Tamler can, my, even my if you're on horse. Linux, even if you're on Linux, find a way. Rate um, us on Linux, yeah. <laughs> now, for those of you, I, I wanted to say one thing, if you will permit me, Tamler, to, to, one last thing about the discussion in the previous segment. Yes. Which is... I will permit. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Father, may I. Which is one of the things that I think Susan Fisk is saying in her column that I think is just wrong is that somehow it's a mistaken view that I mean it's it's nice to say that we should be nice to each other, but at just a purely descriptive level, for hundreds of years, science has never been nice. Science is not nice. There have been assholes and dicks since the moment we started claiming things, and the whole point the whole point is that it doesn't matter. What like what your character is? Newton and Leibniz were both probably assholes, but like everybody can agree that like you know they made they <laughs> they made, they made serious progress in calculus. Wait, Leibniz? Are you lumping Leibniz in? I don't well, agree. no, because of their beef about about uh, calculus. I don't know whether uh, it was. I'm saying they could have been royal assholes. Like I'm sure they were. It, like they they had beef with each other. The point is like it's did always Leibniz make contributions true. though. Uh, to calculus, which is mathematics, yeah. right? Um, is that um, what that is? I, uh, yeah, that's what I've seen that to. word. <laughs> I mean, you usually have seen it with a pre right yeah. before it. <laughs> yeah. um, it's like pre-calculus, but after that. No, um, I've always seen it after utilitarian. <laughs> there, it's a weird expectation that we would ever be really nice to each other. Uh, as I'm not saying that this in any way means that we should be assholes. But it is, we've been pretty protected as a field if we've not experienced the wrath of some jerk. Um, and I, I think that that's just unfortunately. So uh, David's final conclusion and recommendation is be mean to people. Call them assholes. Call, call them, them assholes. I, you know, as long as... Because long- then you'll be like Isaac Newton. <laughs> you can be... You can... If you fucking discover the laws of gravity, you know, you pretty much can call anybody whatever you want. But but science isn't nice, I guess. That's 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 just the harsh truth. It's it, science is red in tooth and claw. And with that, let's move on. Philosophers, though, very nice. So all you people Super looking nice. to go into that mind, especially nice to women, <laughs> especially nice to young women. Um, 
It's just tradition. It's tradition. Mr. Robot, second season, polarizing a little bit. I've gotten a lot of people like saying, defend your show to me. I'm prepared to do that. I think both of us have gone through a bit of a roller coaster in terms of how we feel about this. Let's start before (laughs) we even get into. I like how serious we take it. I, I do take it very seriously. I mean, like, we, we, we really went hard for this show, right? Like, our yeah. credibility is... Um, it's, it's more it's, at stake than Sam Esmail's. It's really interesting. I don't know if you've seen him interviewed after the show, like, after the finale, but just to see him on shows talking about it, like, that's one of the things I want to get to. What happened this season if you take it on a purely straightforward level i i have found that the dominant reaction to the finale was everything is on the level right now there are questions that we don't know about but like there's no fucking time travel there's no alternate universes there's no like question as to the reality of any character right now Let's let's walk through the show as if they're right about that, and then we can talk okay. about some open-ended questions. Okay, so you want to give it a stab? I mean, part of it is— <laughs> I was what, hoping you would. Yeah, yeah so well, well, I guess so, so Elliot wakes up. He like we the, the season starts. This is one of the, I think, the issues with the season, with Elliot living with his mom, isolated, separated from the rest of F society, and trying to get rid of Mr. Robot by disconnecting himself from all internet, you know, like access to a computer, everything. So he's just living at his mom's, who had not been a character on the show. We didn't even know if she was alive or not. And uh, so he's now living with her. Yeah, in a very stoic sort of... um uh, stripped down existence. Yeah. Uh, he writes in his notebook. He's gone analog. He's gone full analog yeah. in the in the hopes that Mister Robot won't rear his head because there's no there's no reason for him to because the yeah. the, the hacking was his primary motivation. The hack's he, been done. We don't we, yeah we don't know what's gone on since the we end don't of- know what happened with Tyrell. We don't. Then he's also just watching basketball with a guy named Leon and gets involved with a another guy named Ray who's played by Craig Robinson who's awesome. Right. And Leon uh, is Joey Badass the and, rapper. Uh, he's good. <laughs> he's good. So there's um, a fascination with Seinfeld for some reason. They're watching basketball games in the park. It's all very strange and I think it matters whether you go on Reddit and look at the Right. Look at look, look at the you know the pe- the discussion on Reddit or not, but even after the first episode, somebody brought up that they thought Elliot was in prison or in a mental institution. And as soon as that enters your mind, and then you go back and watch ju- even the first episode, it it seems obviously true. Yeah, like that so, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's the power of the internet. That's the power the, of the, the internet. Like the, after it was revealed to be actually the case, like the Reddit people were like, "We did it. We solved it." You yeah, know? yeah. Which yeah. I actually think I. So next year, I, I pledge to not go on Reddit um, because then once you know after the first episode that that's the deal, you don't know maybe the details. Is Ray the warden? 
you know, like what's right. Joey? Why is Joey badass having lunch with him and all the meals with him every single day? Like you don't know the exact details about that part, but you know that the that this whole thing with him and his mom that's not real. And and so it you know the fact that you don't find out for sure for another four or five episodes for some reason was a little more frustrating than last year when you knew that that Mr. Robot wasn't real. Like, I don't know. Like, I was willing to let them reveal that whenever they wanted to reveal it. But this this was frustrating for some reason. Like, okay, can we just have it be clear that he's in prison right now? I think part of the issue was that the reason he put himself in prison turns out to be that that this was the only way he thought he could get rid of Mr. Robot, but their interactions weren't that interesting to me while he's in prison or while he's, you know, in his delusion of not prison. Like, none of that stuff was interesting. Them playing chess with each other. There was beautiful, like, scenes and, like, really cool, you know, filming and the cinematography was Cinematography this season was was amazing. Off the charts. So, like, you could enjoy it at that level, but I I didn't enjoy it as a, like, I didn't feel like it developed his character anymore. I knew that he was uncomfortable and was going to try to get rid of Mr. Robot, but that he couldn't really, like, I didn't need five episodes, part of which were devoted to like driving that point home even further so that was i guess i think what got a lot of people a little annoyed um whether they knew that the prison thing was going on or not like that 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 was a little annoying yeah meanwhile i think you're right i i I mean i i disagree about about i'm going to continue reading reddit because i think so much of of what the journey uh of this show is through Esmail's desire to plant clues um, throughout, but that said, I agree that that the pacing of this mystery and reveal was just too long, um, and it didn't. It we could have gotten through it much quicker. But you know, um, you a lot of people were like, "Holy shit, that's awesome!" When they right. found out that, that that, and you know, the reason we didn't think that it's not for because we were so smart because we read it on Reddit, and I think it's fairly obvious once you read once that idea is planted in your head, it's totally obvious. But but again, I I think that your your analogy to season one is the right one, where we all kind of figured out from episode one that. Mr. Robot wasn't real, yeah. and that wasn't revealed to us, but we knew. I just think that the pacing of that mystery reveal was tighter. Yeah, Like, there was character development through, even though you knew yeah. that, that it was true. But um, you didn't know, like, why, like, right. what was going on, and you were interested as to how this was happening. And and in some ways, I think that spending that much time with the development of the prison life of, of uh, Elliot is an unclear payoff and i we can talk when we talk theories yeah. like i think that there there might have been a reason to spend that much time on it but it's it's not clear by the end no why. and there's like this side plot with craig robinson right. where he's running some uh, silk road style re- website where you know it's like a black market for any horrible thing and that just seemed like not necessary. That just seemed like it didn't advance the plot. It there was, it was, it was somewhat in, just because if you love Craig Robinson and you yeah. just love the who I saw at a party. Just I want to say that's for, right, for the right which is awesome. Yeah, totally. Like when you're a, an established social psychologist, you know that's what happens. Yeah, I mean, 
all these blockers are trying to take down my fame. <laughs> <laughs> methodological terrorists exactly. get in the way of you like yeah hanging um, out with Craig Robinson <laughs> so so meanwhile there's a new FBI agent that we meet Dom who's awesome she's great she's Meryl played by Meryl Streep's daughter which I didn't know for a while that it was Meryl Streep's daughter you couldn't tell just by looking at her. She looks exactly. I mean, right. a- after I found out, yeah. yeah. But, but you know, yeah. that, that one I was the Reddit person. I knew <laughs> from just. Lo- I didn't have to read that that was Meryl Streep's daughter. There's an FBI investigation ongoing about the hack. Um, she is kind of at the street level, you know, the, at the street level investigator. You know, we think yeah. Sure, there's a a mini trope there about the the dedicated agent who is going to solve the mystery but he's lonely lonely um her life is completely devoted to this case and but she seems to be making progress despite the higher ups not caring she's a mcnulty kind of figure she's 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 not her alcohol is alexa amazon's alexa (laughs) <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, and we get a lot of scenes between her and Alexa, and and a great masturbation scene. Yes, God, that was so. That was just was an awesome scene. It yeah. was great because w- whether or not you find it sexually appealing, it is. It characterized a particular loneliness. Yeah. Right. It was just so. I, I thought it was very well done. Yeah. So okay, that you have that. You have Angela getting deeper into evil core but also you're wondering still like what's what's her plan here like she, yeah. she really just decided people don't respect me so i am going to be a big shot at evil core um or at e-core you know like this and and i'm gonna try to win over philip price and i'm really excited about going on a date with him <laughs> or is she does she have something planned? Is she infiltrating, right? Yeah. It's un- it's unclear, I think, throughout, probably throughout. intentionally. And, but yeah. but I found that actually to be a frustrating aspect of, of it. Like, Oh, I, see, I actually kind of liked that. Yeah. That's interesting. I think we might split on the Angela plot because yeah. I actually found that to be maybe the most compelling thing of the whole season. And I like yeah. her. I like that actress, Portia Doubleday. And so... What else? So Darlene and F Society are trying to capitalize. It's clear that the hack didn't quite wasn't right, yet right. like didn't bring them everything that they wanted. Evil Core right. seems like they're like the government's kind of kissing their ass. Philip Price, Jack, Jack, you know, he can get the government to uh, do whatever he wants them to do. Although they'll put a little, they'll be a little annoying sometimes, but he'll still tell them to like wipe their mouth. <laughs> right. and I, I think importantly that what's shown is that the the presumed sort of liberation of the common person um, that was the stated intention of these F society hackers actually did not have like it just didn't have that intended effect that in fact people people's debts haven't really been erased they have been they're being enforced by the bank um with with no evidence, um, so Ecor is trying to actually maintain control of the financial world by introducing their own electronic currency and still keeping control over the finances of of the masses. So you see, actually, a lot of a lot of not a lot, but some key scenes where the common person is getting sort of screwed over. 
and really no scenes where the common person is benefiting from this. Right, right. Just zero scenes where that's A lot happening. of trash can fires, like, to lot, indicate. Like, yeah, <laughs> there's, like, trash can fires, but there's also, like, a guy who makes good sandwiches going out of business because nobody can pay for it. So, like, the whole thing just seems like, as of yet, there hasn't been any upside. So, meanwhile, the FBI investigation takes them to China and Dom has this interaction with White Rose, who we find out is also, like, the chief finance minister of... Is it finance minister of of, of uh, China? And then is almost killed by a, what we assume are Dark Army agents who then shoot mm-hmm. themselves. So things pick up mid-season after the prison thing is revealed where you find out that Elliot was in prison but now he's getting released because he's brought like this is how inconsequential the whole Silk Road kind of thing was is like I had to think for a second wait why did Elliot get out of prison oh yeah because he brought down that Silk Road website but did you you know we never talked about this I don't think even off the air but um wasn't it sort of interesting that um, that the the warden's story about how he had vowed to never look at what was being sold? Yeah, do you remember that? I I, I found that pretty intriguing, and it made me actually more sympathetic to him um, for some you know for purely irrational reasons because like he he ought to have. I mean, he's it's like gross negligence. Um, uh, I promise and, never to look at the. The methodology behind the, the study. <laughs> I believe you. Yeah, and and the story about his wife, you know, and, and yeah, I, I mean, maybe it's just Craig Robinson is so likable. But I think that's what it is. Like he could be, like, there's nothing that he could be doing short of like hurting a member of my family that I would right. Really, like, and and, he, and he knew that he was getting yeah. himself caught. Right. I think that once once it became real to him what he was doing and and he seemed to have like a connection with elliot like a genuine connection with elliot that was like in fact to me more interesting than anything that was going on between him and mr robot right this is the this is a big flaw for me for the season is their dynamic in the whole time while he's in prison to me was not in it. Like, I, I wanted it to get to Angela or Dom or Darlene right. or whatever. And it was, yeah. I think it was just too drawn out. Right? Yeah. There was a point to be made there that they're at war with each other. Yeah. And we got hit over the head with the chess metaphor. Interestingly, like, once that's done and we get to Darlene and Angela, um, we were given an episode even where he never makes an appearance. Right. And I never thought that would be good it, but it was it was really it was good re- and that was where like things started to pick up in the season in terms of right like oh my god there's a story right and this is where the pacing went went to sort of like 11 on the meter for me yeah. like it got it just got good it got really right. good and so so we're privy to we haven't to... even talked about alf and that whole thing <laughs> <laughs> i gotta give it to Esmail. like i i it was risky, and when I was watching that episode where you know it's like Full House parody '80s sitcom, I I was uncomfortable not because of the plot, but because I was like, 
please tell me that he's not gonna bomb this episode. I like I was rooting for Esmail to pull it off because I was so worried that this was like a jump the shark moment. So it it went on for like twenty minutes, but then there was at the I think that's the same episode that there was that awesome like Angela planting the was it the femtocell? The femtocell, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. And that was so cool. That was like that was kind of tar- like Tarantino style filming, and that was so that sort of super like, tense, like heist kind of tense, you know. I don't think the Alf thing worked, and the '90s Full House thing worked fully, just because of the existence of too many cooks. Had there not been too many cooks two <laughs> years ago or whatever, or one year ago, whenever it was. I I would have been I would have thought okay that's cool like you know they tried to fit it in thematically with the characters and but you know that given that that sort of has been done not just the natural born killers thing where it's like dark but funny but literally those same comic beats have been done and like in some yeah. ways too many cooks did it like they they really drew it out in ways that were more interesting then. Yeah, but it's such a different thing that's being done. Like I think that that maybe the recency is what makes it feel like like a a copy rather than an homage, but but I I I think that if you treat it to, but there's a couple of things that I think make it actually okay. One is that this is the mind of somebody like at around at around a certain age. Right. Your mind is full of shit like that. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, and the second thing is that there is an incredible tension about. I mean, this was the reveal for Mister Robot telling Elliot that they had killed um, Tyrell. That was that was the way that it was revealed to us. Not in the, the sitcom. No, but the ju- but that tale with the juxtaposition of Tyrell in the trunk. Yeah. Um, you know, crying out is is how we were kind of viscerally told the story that basically they had done this to Tyrell. Yeah, uh, which I do, which I still believe, by the way. I actually, but we well, we'll that. talk about that. Yeah, because yeah, you're in the minority there. I yeah. am, and and yeah. <laughs> so, which is funny. Like we've kind of switched places here. Now you're yeah, the yeah, fucking like weirdo stoner, and I'm like, I think we just yeah. got to accept that things are a little more straightforward. I'm like, I'm Yoel. Your weed, your weed just got a little weaker. I, I think you're. So, so, yes. <laughs> gonna get a new weed guy. <laughs> <You got it. laughs> so here's my. I I'm, I have a com. I have ambivalent about the whole elf thing. Like I I think the comic elements of it didn't work as well for me because of too many cooks but the i i get that like i thought the thematic stuff and the character based stuff did work like it seemed a little too proud of itself that it was the way that it was parodying it like they even ran old commercials yeah um, i know and it didn't like that i guy so I, I never read it as funny. I was incredibly tense throughout the whole scene and and didn't even p- part of what I thought that it showed, which is not storytelling, but was Rami Malek's <laughs> like absolute sort of ability to not to blink, not not <laughs> blink and just maintain a level of dread and confusion through what is the most yeah. absurd um <laughs> absurd set of circumstances that they're filming right no i agree 
And so that's fine. Like, like I'm glad that he wants to take chances like that. He also built it up. Like, this is this is one of the problems with like getting involved with it outside of the episode. If that had just popped up, but like Sam Esmail was saying, like this is my favorite episode that we've done, which is crazy. Like, it's like whatever you want to say about it, like. It doesn't compare to the prison break episode. So I was all amped up. Like, and cause you uh, also right. think you're going to finally fucking figure out what's going on in this season. Right. And you don't even figure that out. And instead you get this kind of retread idea that yeah. develops the characters a little bit and, but doesn't really develop the story. But then you also do get like, like one of the great, the season was full of these intense, really suspenseful scenes it's funny that he does that the best and it's like it's almost like he's not interested in it as much but when he wants to do it he can really really do it right and that scene of angela infiltrating the the fbi building and the that that so tense yeah so 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 tense i think by by the way there's a so i actually don't follow or listen to anything esmail says um, at, but I read Reddit, and I think that there is a difference there. Like to me, it clearly to me to me art is ruined when I hear the creators talk too much about it, because there's no guarantee that they have any skill in talking about their own art anyway. It's funny because I, I I get that. Although I will say that listening to a podcast that Esmail was on after the season made me feel better about the season. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like, yeah. and it's just because of how guileless he is. Like, he really, because he follows all the stuff. Like, he reads every review. He talks about it. Like, he's really interested in knowing what people liked and what they didn't. And, you know, not that it compromises his vision, but that's so different than, like, the Matt Weiners of the world or even the David Simons or the, you know, that, that he's just so out there and open to it. There was something very... And also just, like, talking about other shows. Like, he loves the Louis show, um, Horace and Pete. And, he and you know, like, he was, talk, he was talking about seeing Sully. And, like, yeah. I don't know. There was something very sort of... Uh, it, it warmed me to yeah. what was a season that was... We're going to get to some of the major plot points. But the, I think the major frustration was that it was a cocktease season. It was, like... Uh, somebody described it as the equivalent of edging. Like, <laughs> yeah. just like constantly bringing you to the point of uh, yeah. <laughs> of orgasm and just letting yeah. go. And and there's a question as whether you feel that at the end of the season too, because yes. then it's like it's one thing to feel it for a week; it's another thing to feel it for a year. Well, so the other thing I have to say is that I think that the complexity of the plot increased substantially, and that it actually beca- it's challenging to follow. And as you were saying that that Esmail is like very involved in sort of the online discussion uh, about his own show, it's very clear that he is uh, paying attention to like redditors and the hacking community. In a in a way, uh, this is sort of. Um, He's he's very literally taking the Elliot's treating treatment of the audience uh, as sort of the way that he is treating the audience, right. like a character that is involved in the show. Yeah, and you really see that just the the amount of effort that his team puts into the the hacking stuff and the Easter eggs, 
which can get to the point where, well, if you really need to know any of this stuff in order to understand the story, then maybe it's asking a bit too much of, of the watcher, but 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 it, of the viewer. But it, it's fun. I've really enjoyed that part. So I agree that it can be fun. I'm wondering if it's necessary because that's a those two things are different. So you know yeah. the 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 Easter eggs, the email addresses on the FBI board that we see at the end, and what right. they lead to. They seem funny, and you know, like uh, it's impressive that he puts that much into the meta aspects of the show. But are they? But I guess you're gonna try to. S- well, say that the, they're necessary to the plot. You know? I think that you're you're exactly right in pointing out that <clears throat> that question has no good answer. Like if what I if like some of the things that I'm going to say are true, then that means that we need to take seriously some of the Easter eggs. But if I have to take seriously some of the like the Easter eggs, how the hell do I know which ones to take to take are relevant to the plot and which ones are just a sideshow? And then is that fair to the people? Is that fair who, to the viewer? Yeah. yeah. Like, is that asking too much? I mean, this is a show that doesn't, that asked way more of its audience than it did in the first season. Just like, trust me, like, whatever with the longer episodes, like, I don't care how long an episode is. I didn't notice. Yeah, I didn't even notice. But the, but just the, all right, let's, let's talk about like, so, so, so then you've, all of a sudden there's this phase two that right. everybody's talking about and that's we, like the mid-season little bump to say yeah. like there's this isn't a dead season there is a plot and it turns out there was a second phase yeah and we don't know what the second phase is um we find out in the last episode or at least we think we do meanwhile there's still no there's nothing about Tyrell that we know for sure yet he's been sending Joanna Wellick gifts or at least right, or like somebody's been sending. Somebody's yeah. been sending her. Maybe it's Elliot. Maybe it's uh, there's a there was a huge theory about whether Tyrell is Elliot. They right. call it the third Tyrell-iot. personality. Yeah. yeah, theory, right. and you know that in the first season, I was very much on board with the idea that Joanna and Tyrell were projections of his parents. And right. that Elliot was like that little baby that was born, and that became I, not because of me, uh, but that that was a kind of a leading theory that Tyrell was coming back in time to, you know that 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 somehow that baby was Elliot, and so that was like <laughs> I a, can hear Paul Bloom's eyes rolling I, at us. I know, uh, <laughs> I know the sound of two eyes rolling, but what what is the sound of one eye rolling? That that became a leading theory that that Elliot's it's not whether Tyrell is alive or dead, but what is he even real? And you know, there's a lot of questions about that, and a lot of a lot of things that happen on the show that make you kind of question. Right. That. So I mean, this season, this, even if you believe that Tyrell was real, this season I think there was there were hev- there was heavy hinting that he was real, but he got killed. Yeah. Um, uh, and and that now he had become an integrated sort of third personality due to some break or guilt that Elliot felt. Meanwhile, White, White Rose, I mean, there was the whole, you know, the FBI uh, operation is called Berenstain, Operation Berenstain. We talked about this in our bonus episode, but, like, you know, there was there's a lot of alternate reality talk. White Rose actually says, 
sometimes I think of realities where the hack didn't happen. Would you want that right. reality? And so they're, they are feeding the conspiracy theorists yeah. and the... And an, yeah, and Angela's interrogation. There was a split between people who wanted it to be like that and people who didn't. And a lot of the critics also, I think, most of the critics didn't want it to be anything fucked up. They were like Paul Bloom, right? They right. wanted it to be just m way more straightforward and they would have been disappointed. I think people have been traumatized by Lost, how that it's, didn't it's pay off. It's funny to say, I was, I was so... You a lot of what I'm going to say is influenced by both our discussions, Reddit, but also a conversation I had with Yoel uh, about this last night. And we were both talking about this very thing. There's like a, it's a funny thing to say, but it's like a post, there's a post lost world in which there is, that is the worst accusation you could make of somebody. Right. <laughs> right. Like, oh shit, you didn't even know where you were taking this. And now, you know, I, I yeah. Another, I mean, the same I, thing happened with, by the way, um, uh, Fuck the David Lynch TV series, um, Tw Twin Peaks. Twin yeah, Peaks. it's funny, yeah. but like that, there that was pre-internet, so mm -hmm. like people just kind of let it go, and now it's remembered as just being really cool. And right. whereas Lost is remembered as I don't know, like, meaningless meanderings through potential things that just turned out to no yeah. payoff. Okay, let's get to the the big question. So yeah, we get Darlene gets captured by the FBI because. They take in one of the F Society people to the hospital, and Dom finds out that they're that her and Cisco are out there, and Dark Army people kill try to kill both Cisco and Darlene. Darlene survives. Cisco's brain gets splattered all splattered. over. Splattered in an amazing scene, by the way. Oh, but there's an important, important. It's worth it just for that scene. Just that scene is so fucking amazing. The way that the tension is built, the counting down of the street, uh, interspersed with Angela and Elliot on the uh, subway, yeah. like uh, that. So, that's just like redeems anything. So like, good. like everybody who doesn't like this season should shut the fuck up just because of that. <laughs> just enjoy. This, this is my number one sort of yeah. uh, take home to me is that I'm enjoying the ride. I in the post lost world I will less allow the outcome to influence my enjoyment of the show. Yeah, because it might be a dud of an outcome, but I'm I'm pretty I'm enjoying the ride. But um, no matter what, the, there was so much just just the scenes, just the just the composition of the shots is enough yep. to make it completely worthwhile. The music, right. the fucking music, holy shit! The music is amazing. Um, and Angela singing karaoke in like a in, in a very normal karaoke voice yeah. like, you know no um but so there's a critical plot point though that um that i i think is is critical at least is that the femto cell it turns out that the dark army uh had essentially taken control of the femto cell that was used to surveil the FBI's communications and the F society didn't know this when they found it out, they tried to set up a meeting and confront the Dark Army to see what the hell was going on. And they were like, it's part of Phase 2. And they're like, what the fuck is Phase 2? And they're like, you find out from the Dark Army's communication, right. White, White Rose, that, that Elliot actually was behind Phase 2. So how, like, she was confused as to why F Society wouldn't already know this. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So then we get to the finale, which I think everybody says... Should have just been one week. But they are very different episodes. They're both called Python, but 
The first one starts with Elliot going into a, like a dreamlike state, lucid dreaming, right. where he's going to try to um, figure out what's going on by being the observer of Mr. Robot. Up till now, it's always Mr. Robot that gets to watch him do things, but now he's going to be doing... Uh, and really, really sort of a... Maybe brilliant, maybe maybe frustrating doubling down on the unreliable narrator yeah <laughs> in a crazy way you're like okay i guess there's an out here for everything in that like we were explicitly told that this is a dream you know right so should i trust anything that's happening on the other hand you could just say no that's what it requires for him to observe the real interactions <laughs> meanwhile angela who has been captured at the end of last episode by we think our fbi agents is being taken to new jersey the ultimate punishment. Yeah. She goes into a house where there's all these pictures, of, but duct tape over the pictures' faces, like the people in the pictures' faces. Yeah. And then she goes into this room, and it's like she's back in time with, you know, the... The, the Commodore 64. Commodore 64. And a little girl walks out that looks like a little mini Angela, dressed in a suit. And, little power suit, <laughs> and says, and and there's this big fish, and you know Angela was the one that was taking care of Qwerty, the the fish that Elliot had, and they say the and the little girl says we have to do this test. The, the fish is going to die if we don't do the test, and then her first question right. is, have you ever cried during sex? Right. From this little like eight year old or nine year old or whatever she is. It is jarring, right? It's super jarring that that's the first question to come out of her mouth. And her insistence yeah. <laughs> like through Angela's uh, uh, complete, like, like, what the fuck? Like, no, answer this. Like, Have you ever cried during sex? And Angela's like, at first, it has a normal reaction, which is I'm not answering that question. Like, um, and then the girl says, they'll beat me if you don't do this test. And she shows these like whip marks on her back, right? right. And so, Angela, by the way, the answer—I mean, it should be: Do you ever not cry during sex? Because right, most people do, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just wanted to make sure. <laughs> during, after, before. Yeah. So, okay, so, so, so far, like questions. on the last several episodes, you've said to the women that you cry during sex and that you videotape it. Oh uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, what am I going to do? Lie. <laughs> um. So this was really reminiscent of the uh, the Harrison Ford tests to to prove if someone's Runner. a replicant or not. What's it, yeah. in Blade Runner? Yeah, it's like a David Lynch directed Blade Runner. Scene, yeah, that's you know? exactly what it was. It was David Lynch directs Blade Runner. Um, it, it looked like a Mulholland Drive, Twin Peaks kind of yep. scene, and it was, but it was doing the same thing of like testing to see if somebody's real. And the and and the the test only gets stranger. There's like a call from a computerized voice that that asks you like you're in a room, like how do you get out? And then there's this focus on a key. Mm-hmm. And what's her question, the little girl's question? Is, the key, is yeah. the key in the room? Is the key in the room? She's like, the key to what? And she's like, is the key in the room? And then um, Angela looks at a, on the table, and there's a copy, an old copy of Lolita. Right. Well, one of her questions relevantly at this point was, 
have you ever fantasized about killing your father? Right. And I think Angela says no. And from all we've seen, like, they have a good relationship. It's a little... They seem to have a decent relationship, her and her father. So that's a weird question, too. But then they ask about the key. Is the key in the room? You see that there's a paperback copy of Lolita. And then Angela answers... The key was in my fist. My fist was in my pocket. Which is, and I think this is the thing, like all the people who want to have a straightforward reading of the series, like they can't explain this. That is a line from Lolita that Humbert Humbert says right when he's in the hotel where he first has sex with Lolita and he's wandering around the hotel. He ends up meeting Quilty the sort of antagonist who you don't know if he's he's real or not he's thinking as he's talking to him um i had the key the key was in my fist the, the my fist was in my pocket he's drugged lolita and he's going to go back up there and have sex with her that's what he thinks at the time that's not how it goes down but that's what he thinks at the time what the fuck why is she saying that and Every explanation where this was just a test of Angela for White Rose doesn't explain her responding to that question is the key in the room and her responding that way. I'm sorry. Like, there's just no... I I have an answer. Okay. Um, But it's... it's, It'll delve into some nerdery. That's fine. (laughs) And this is actually the bulk of the conversation I was having with you all last night. So... So uh, let's just say that the pl- we've outlined the plot. Um, there, there's, there's a, a last scene um, where uh, through this, throughout uh, the second half of the season, we don't know what's happened to Mobley and um, Trenton, right? Yeah. Um, and we see them outside of a Fry's, which is an electronics store in Arizona. Um, and they're talking about, basically, they realize that the hack has fucked things over and they want to undo it so they're having a discussion about how to undo this which is again sort of a tease about time travel to me but also at the level of reality what they're talking about just by the way when when uh leon shows up and that's what we're we're left with we don't know what's going to happen to them the hack was taking all of e-corp's data and encrypting it and the way in which you encrypt it is this super strong encryption, um, the 256-bit AES encryption that everybody sort of understands is essentially unbreakable. It would require like thousands of years of computers churning out uh, at their best effort, right? Which is one reason I think um, you all pointed this out, that White Rose is obsession with time. That all of the data that eCorp has is, is in, I mean, that they have on eCorp is encrypted, and that's why it's inaccessible to eCorp. But it's um, they didn't not delete deleted. It. It's not. They deleted. didn't delete it, and yeah. in fact, it would take a lot longer to delete all of that than it would just to put an unbreakable layer of encryption on it. And this is where we see what Phase Two is supposed to be. Um, basically, there are paper records that could be used to rebuild all of the banking data that eCorp had because it appears as if eCorp wants to take advantage of this situation and construct its own banking system using their version of Bitcoin, which they call eCoin. 
And I think the tension between White Rose and the Dark Army and um, E-Corp is who's going to take control of the new currency, the new world economy, where the Dark Army wants to introduce their own sort of Bitcoin. There's, there are conversations earlier on about China's use of Bitcoin. Evil Core wants to do E-Coin. Evil Core wants to do E-Coin, where they would essentially have complete control over, over currency. So the key, keys for encryption have to be generated. And one of the ways in which they have to be generated is through using random numbers in order to ensure that the numbers that are generated, these prime numbers that are generated to make these keys um, are unbreakable. So if they're not random, then you can just reverse engineer the process that made them. And so usually these uh, the encryption programs have to find a source of true randomness in nature. So they'll often use the random mouse movements of the user or the thermal readout from what's going on inside of the computer. They're just seeking true randomness. I think that what's happened is that all of a sudden White Rose realizes because remember White Rose was right why are you so why are you still here Angela what the fuck are yeah. you doing she should have been dead he she should have been dead why does she keep popping up what is her importance what's her role in this story I think that Elliot who was the hacker that encrypted all of this somehow used Angela some part of Angela as the key the encryption key the encryption key there is something in Angela. Whoa. Right? Maybe her body, her fingerprints, something that is the key. I think that is the realization that White Rose has during that interrogation. Maybe she even reveals this to Angela, which gets Angela to realize that, she, you know. Like, White Rose reveals that to Angela. Yeah. Uh, we don't know because we don't know whether she actually flipped her or whether she was brainwashed. So one thing her. we haven't said is that the Washington the, the Washington Township plant yes is um, is a big topic in this season, which is the the plant that ended up giving Angela and Elliot's parents leukemia and killing them, and you know sort of what motivated them. White Rose wants her her hands on that plant and Angela's trying to bring it down from within uh, Ecor and White Rose wants her to stop and right. and wants you know she she gets into a big fight with Philip Price and have seen in the cemetery after she White Rose pees on a, the, pees a grave, on grave of the a previous <laughs> which is great with what right. we have to assume was a pagina uh, <laughs> is that the technical term? So White Rose says to her, your parents died for a reason. If I tell you the reason, will you get on board with us? Right. Right. And we don't... So how does that fit into We're your... never told what the reason is. Yeah. So here is the possibility. White Rose is selling Angela the idea of, of the, the possibility of using... Bitcoin, which is the sort of great equalizer, right? The reason Bitcoin is popular is because it completely circumvents governments and banks. Um, now, why does White Rose and China, why are they so interested in the power plant? Well, it requires, and at this part, 
this part I think got what what somebody pointed out on on Reddit um, to make Bitcoin the e currency. You need to introduce scarcity, and the way that scarcity is introduced is that it becomes increasingly hard to what they call mine Bitcoin. So the first few Bitcoins that were ever made were essentially you're getting— What is Bitcoin? I don't even know. Yeah, Bitcoin is an electronic version of currency that that can be used, for instance, and this is through in Silk Road, right? That's how you would pay. So Bitcoin is essentially encrypted math, (laughs) encrypted numbers that are serving as currency— but um, how? But, like when you say the first few bitcoins that were made were. Well, this is like, why this is uh, like honestly, but there are limits to my knowledge and the limits to the patience yeah. of any listener. But the whole point of Bitcoin is the brilliance of it is that um, that you could have an e currency that that just meant okay, electronically you get a dollar, I get a dollar. But there is no easy. There was no easy way to actually prevent inflation from being rampant like unless it's backed by some government or some you know like gold backs or silverbacks or something and the way that the reason that bitcoin is is this huge advancement is that it is a mathematical solution to this problem it essentially requires you to every time you generate a new bitcoin to solve a harder and harder and harder math problem so that nowadays, if you want to create a new Bitcoin, if you want to mine one um, and, and generate like one new Bitcoin, it takes the computational power of like a bunch of computers. So how so would the, I like if I wanted to buy something on Silk Road, how do I get? So you need essentially you need a Bitcoin wallet and and it is a little program that is allowing you people to exchange what right now are fractions of Bitcoin. Um, and it's completely a, a local encryption. If you lose, for instance, like if you had the little Bitcoin wallet on a hard drive and you lost that hard drive, you lost all the money. So it's not, it doesn't exist on a network. It is. It but is how essential. do I get it in the first place? Like, do I need to pay money for it? Like, yeah, like, yeah, so yeah, like you can buy, there's yeah. online gambling sites where I could get, I could get on it for fewer fees if I used Bitcoin, but I have no idea how to do that. Yeah, you would download a little program and you would somehow do a transaction so that you could acquire Bitcoin. Okay. Um, I, but you know, I don't know. I don't. I haven't done it. I think at some point I might have downloaded one of these little programs, but had no use for it. So somebody pointed out that that um, in order to manufacture Bitcoin, you're needing increasing amounts of power, and China is essentially on a grab for power plants in the U.S. to churn out. This, the power that's necessary to churn out Bitcoin. Uh. Um, and so that might be one. We're given a kind of an explanation that the phase two hack, where all of the paper records that are being brought to this one building, and they're going to be scanned in, um, independent of, like, off the grid for eCorp to recreate all of the financial documents and therefore take regain control of the economy. That's what, China, that's what the, the uh, Dark Army is trying to thwart. And the way that they seem to be thwarting this is by creating brownouts so that that building, if it wants reliable power to like scan in the documents, will need to use a set of batteries, the uninterruptible power supplies, which is essentially just 
a gajillion batteries in that building to make sure the operation works throughout the brownouts. Yeah. And because of that, they can they exploit, can exploit yeah, they can exploit the, the UPSs. So, so wow. So first of all, <laughs> nice job <laughs> with that. You so, also don't think Elliot's real. Does that connect to this? Oh, Tyrell. Tyrell, sorry. Real. Yeah. I'm not I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that Tyrell is real. I think that everything is explainable with a fake Tyrell. And and I, I think that it's odd that he's been missing. I think it's odd that he's in this like like perfectly sharp suit. I think it's odd that he professes his love for Elliot. Um I I don't know. I like But that's I'm not, not sure. connected to this theory. Right. I, I don't I, I at least I haven't connected it. There's one. What about hilarious... Angela saying the key was in my pocket about the Lolita thing? So how does that, like you said, oh, my theory will explain that. But why would she be quoting something from Lolita? I don't, I mean, I don't know how, like, I mean, Lolita is in there, uh, in, in the room, right? Yeah. And so, um, so maybe there is a point of realization where, where Angela may have realized that she she was a key like, and she had memorized why. a line from lolita no I, I mean i think that that the reason that she said it was she's being asked about the key and lolita the book is right there and so she's she's, re, she's and she has of, read it somewhat yeah. recently and which i well way over my head actually because i never read lolita i have no idea that line struck a chord I, i've read it a couple of times i think it's a, a total masterpiece uh I mean, more than, I guess, probably two or three times at least. And I just think that that's, you know, and all and the questions about have you ever cried during sex and um, the question about fantasizing about killing your father and then Lolita's there and then she's... And all of this, if you take it on the surface, and it even in... in it seems yeah. like this is covered by your theory is a kind all of this weirdness and killing the big fish that's in the fish tank and the little girl that's apparently trained by the dark army to do yeah. a weird test of people like all of that is just to test Angela to see if she's like what, what No what's... I mean I genuinely think that that White Rose was trying to figure out what role Angela was playing and I but think But why that was this... that the method <laughs> try to figure oh, that out i mean i i think that she's trying to to no i i i don't i think that that test was some sort of pseudoscientific like figuring out her vulnerabilities in order to like fuck with her and and manipulate her like i think that's all that was i think that at some point she realizes that it was that she why she matters but i think that was just like a you know like pseudo psychological way to it's basically a personality test right so we have these like you know there are tests that ask weird questions like the to, to figure out if you if you're schizophrenic or whatever like um and they ask weird questions like that i think that's that's all that was have you ever taken yeah. a scientology personality test by the way where they have you like hold on to the electrodes and they ask you questions i was really drunk when i took one. <laughs> but i know really like my friends and i got really drunk like otherwise why would you go in there they're like we've determined through our science that you're an alcoholic yeah they did right (laughs) no in fact they scolded us for doing that but i mean okay but anyway so i i really hope that's not true because i just don't buy that like think about what you're really saying 
Like they, this was their plan. We're gonna go. Why would we're I gonna do that? capture Angela on the subway, and we're gonna set up this house. We're gonna put duct tape all over the 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 photos in this New Jersey house that we now own. Oh, and we have this little girl, this little white, but that's just uh, blonde American fuckery. girl that we keep around in case something like this happens. And we're going to uh, paint or tattoo some whip marks on her back, and then we're going to give her this script. But and then we're the- also going to like have a like a computerized voice call her, and we're going to make it seem like it's 1995 with a Commodore 64. Feel vulnerable so that she'll be willing to like that. Just doesn't like I like no no I, no, no 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 hold on hold on. You're the you're pointing to the absurdity of everything, but whether my explanation my, no explanation can account for that absurdity. Like what explanation would make that actually make any sense whatsoever? Like the best explanation I think is that they are just doing whatever they can to totally fuck with her. Right. That's I guess I I don't find that a satisfying explanation because that is the explan that it, that's the leading explanation, you know, once White Rose appears. And it's cool that you don't know like what the hell is going on, and then all of a sudden White Rose is there, and she's giving her twenty eight minutes, which for right White Rose is like that's like saying that's like with like a a student comes in and I'll say yeah I'll talk about your first draft with you for ten hours or something like that. What the hell? And so I guess that's 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 the explanation. They did this to fuck with her. I just don't buy that. That's how you fuck with somebody. That they even to get a little blonde girl who looks like her to dress how her is up. That the most mysterious thing that is like trivially easy. Like presumably they have operatives like throughout, and they just to borrow somebody's kid to like have them like put on I a suit know. and ask those questions is not. And but why? Like I, yeah. I guess, like, if that's really what it was, I I don't know why. I mean, that, look, they could have tortured me, her. Like that, but, especially but I, given that they've but, been teasing us with these but what alternate timelines, these alternate realities, Back to the Future music throughout that whole first episode, right? I mean, that whole first episode of the finale. So, so look, this is this is now at my like dubious. This is. This t- yeah. <laughs> this is my most insane crazy theory. That and and this again requires a, a certain level of nerdery. Um, I, I can't wait to hear this. Okay. So, I was explaining that I was explaining that you need um the program that's generating the key gets a source of randomness. And that source of true randomness, like a real random uh uh thing. Um, can come from a variety of sources. Sometimes they use it, right? Like I was saying, they use the thermal infrared readout from from the temperatures that are fluctuating in the computer. Sometimes just the random movements that people make, micro movements with their mouse. But somehow you need you need a true random number generator to make these keys unbreakable, or at least unbreakable by anything we have that wouldn't take thousands and thousands of years. So one possibility is that. Um, <laughs> I can't even believe that I'm going to say this. <laughs> I really, because I've always been the weird, yeah, fucking I know. Okay, so psycho stoner. So one, nothing. No, suppose that Dark Army wants to decrypt the data. They want to take control of the of all the data that's been encrypted by these keys. Yeah. Um. There is. You would have to dedicate thousands of hours of computation to do this. And 
the true randomness of the events that generated the key um, are really the barrier. So they're running simulations of the event that Elliot used to generate the keys. And they're crunching a bunch of simulations to try to replicate whatever he did in order to generate those keys. And whatever and, he did involved Angela, right? And maybe involved Angela, maybe some biological feature of Angela, like um, some something in Angela. And that's what all those computers are being used for, to try their hardest to run simulations of reality to replicate the initial circumstances that gave rise to that random generation of the keys, because that is in some way more efficient than actually trying to crack the code. So, okay, that's the... <laughs> what is that? Like, I don't... So, that doesn't so they sound... Are, I, don't, I don't know You how, built it up to be crazy. I, are they yeah, ro- the, the craziness is that they are actually creating entire simulated worlds and uh, running running each scenario to see if that is the simulated world... So we might be seeing team. some of those simulated worlds. Yep, and there might be some crazy bleed over in, from one simulation to another. I, I see. That is fucked up. Yeah. And Elliot might be the number one victim of these simulations. El, like, there is something about the flickering of uh, Mr. Robot at the end that is what you would expect if he was in a really complicated video game. Right. Right. So Elliot, (laughs) they're doing this simulation because of something that Elliot had done, right? So you have a real world, Uh, and then you have, like, up till the hack, and then you have a bunch of simulations? But Mr. Robot is pre-hack. Yeah, and so so there is a... (laughs) literal and metaphorical way in which my explanation is still half baked <laughs> um so i don't know like i like i literally in my conversation with you all last night was coming up with this and i don't know exactly how it would explain the pre the pre-hacking um it could it could be that there was some point at which in those three days that are missing um the real shit went down it could be that Elliot's memories are fucked up because it, you know, like because uh, of his disorder. Yeah, or because whatever went down in those three days, and and um, I, I don't know. It's so it's really tough when you have such an unreliable narrator to know um, what's going on. But I will say that, and that could be the Lolita connection. I mean, this is one of the issues with the yeah. show is he's such a fan of movies and literature mm-hmm. and like and and you know he's a fan of the same things that i am too which is what makes it like right. kubrick david right. lynch tarantino like these, no, these are the, uh, nabokov like these are the things that i love too so that's what makes the show he's so, the blend he's a blend of yours and my interests but in, one in like way. answer to my lolita question is he loves lolita he knows that line he thought it'd be cool to like have her speak a line from lolita right. you know and right. and and that's always the reason why that looks like American Psycho is because he loves American Psycho. The reason why that 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 whole episode seems like Mulholland Drive is because that's one of his favorite movies of all time. Right. So that that's this other thing that sort of stands in the way of really trying to read into too much. But and I that, really like your idea, actually. I have to say, <laughs> like this, and this is actually, very cool. This actually helps the first part of the season um, have a real payoff because. Uh, Craig Robinson, the warden's 
real problem was in his implementation of Bitcoin. That is, Elliot hacking around with the Bitcoin problem could have a real payoff in that we learn something about how Bitcoin works and what Elliot knows about Bitcoin, which is central to the to the Dark Army's goals now. Yeah, I mean, like, if, so if, if it has a payoff, then that payoff... This is one of the issues with doing the show. You know, and Sam no, Esmail talks <laughs> about this. It's like, he's like, it's, people are sort of <laughs> carping or complaining, but I think of this as this one big story that I'm telling... And, you know, people don't go, you know, in a movie, people don't say, wait, I don't understand why Jules is acting like this in Pulp Fiction. Right. I, he didn't say that, but that was sort of the implication of like, you, you have to evaluate the whole thing. But, it's just hard when you have to wait another fucking year, you know, and it's like, yeah. wait, this huge payoff in like three years or like what, you know. And, you know, like this year, you've been very patient with it. And then you hear about this phase two and you're mm -hmm. and you're waiting to also figure out what the fuck is going on with Ty Tyrell, who you got kind of attached to as as a character in the first season. And then you find out that phase two is blowing up a building with a bunch of paper in it. It was disappointing. And that's like that really? we're not even going to do it. Yeah. And so w then you wonder, like, OK, fine. Like it is trying to tell a long story, but. I don't know, like Breaking Bad had a theme every year. The Wire, even though it's part of a larger picture, has a like a, a story that it's telling every single yeah. year. And those stories fit into the larger story. The first season of Mr. Robot had a story it was telling there that was part of a larger oh. picture. I don't know if season two had that. So this is, this is a, a good analogy with The Wire. Season two of The Wire where they move from the streets, the inner city, to the docks. Yeah. They tell a completely different story in a way that I actually was disappointed. I I did not like that season the first time I saw it. Yeah. It becomes a great show because Absolutely. of that move, because of the move to the docks, and then the greater picture starts emerging, that this wasn't just a street-level uh, cops and robbers tale, yeah. police procedural. So. You know, okay, so I thought of that too, which is why like season two of The Wire may not be the best example of what I'm talking about because people were dissatisfied. I had to grow to love that season as much as I love all the other seasons. It's not like I didn't like it. Right. I, I maintain, however, that it had a, an arc. Like yeah, yeah. Had internally, the internally, there's a internally story. it yeah. had an arc that was resolved at the end of the of the season and the thing that people didn't like about it was wait we love avon we love webay we love stringer yeah. we love yeah. d and, and now we gotta go to these and now now it's all this new these new people <laughs> that we have to figure out but at least like you had an arc of that story and you get a little bit of that with dom i guess and the arc of learning that the FBI knew a fuckload more than we would have thought that they knew about F Society. Right. So how how many seasons are planned out for Mr. Robot? Does he have a... So I don't know. So, But we do know that he at least has claimed that he has a story arc. Yeah. And I, I think, like, I've heard talk of four or five seasons. I think he's said that it definitely won't be more than five seasons. But I guess my worry is, like, I would much rather it 
be told in the number of seasons necessary to tell the story well. Yeah. Even if that means that we get one fewer season. Well, and so and that I, might, yeah. And I, so I just wonder if maybe that was an issue with this season, that it was stretching out what maybe was part of one season right. That's into one possibility. a whole season. Although I will say this, I, after having said that I don't, I don't follow Sam Esmail um, off, like when he talks about the show, there was an interview and maybe you heard it. All I saw was the Reddit headline where he says that there is one thing that he feels like he's been telegraphing. Yes. And, and, you know, maybe we're just missing. Um, and uh, I thought it was the stuff with the father daughter stuff, hmm. because it is weird how that's not a topic that people are talking about very much. The fact that the da- there's daddy. clearly like the disconnect between that whole thing and the crying during sex and the father fantasizing about killing her father. Like, where did that come from? And Lolita, given that we see Angela seem, seeming very close to her father and like a really nice kind of relationship in a, right. in a show that doesn't have very many nice father yeah. relationships. Yeah, father-child relationships or even just relationships, <laughs> period. Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, so frustrating for him to say that there's one big obvious thing. <laughs> I know, I'm like, that's no, there great. isn't. Like, clearly there isn't. Um, I, I don't know, but here's the thing. Like you said, well, maybe, like, in that first episode, I feel like all of season two was, okay, but then in the next episode, yeah. Yeah, we're going to yeah, yeah, find yeah, yeah, out yeah. something, and we never did. It right. was like, it's like a Zeno. Just... I felt like it was Zeno's paradox of TV telling, right? Storytelling, where, like, I always felt <laughs> right. like I was halfway there. Good enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, but it's still cool. Like I don't want to trash it at all because I I really liked the yeah. season. You reminded me of something um, that I did want to say. Okay, so my suspicion that Tyrell's there's still no evidence that Tyrell is is real um, comes from a couple of things. One <laughs> one more genuine than the other. One is that we've seen that Mister Robot can harm himself. That Elliot can harm himself. Right. We saw that with his father pushing him off the pier. Right. And I that becomes I think potentially a critical plot point where we know like it could very well be that he took the gun to himself. Cuz it does seem like he would have had to shoot himself in the gut yeah. for that to for Tyrell not to be real right. cuz that's a real bullet it seems. Yeah. Like. Or else like what you know, Yeah, what what fuck the show. It's like we can't <laughs> trust Yeah, anything. I know. I know. Yeah. What yeah. doesn't jibe with with this is that that it seems as if Angela is talking to Tyrell in a way that it's unclear. Who would be waking who, up? Who, who if, would be talking to Angela and who would be waking up? I mean, it could be that he shot himself in some sort of non-gut, non-lethal way and sort of the other personality took over. Um, but, but what makes you think that he's dead? So this was my final little bit of criticism was... Like, the the whole ride that we were supposed to go on of thinking he wasn't real and then it being shocking that he was real when he shot him. I mean, I think that's how people interpreted it for the most part is, oh, like, he they played with you to make you doubt the reality of Tyrell and then you end the season knowing for sure that Tyrell is real. I know, everybody thinks it's for sure. And I, I don't know why and, I, I haven't caught... That. I don't I but I I agree with you that I I think there's no reason to be sure but what but why 
you seem to think there's still good reason to think he's not real. Not, and I guess that's what I don't yeah, totally not, get. I mean, not, I know Mr. Robot said that he shot him. He didn't even say that he killed him, actually. He just said that he shot him. Right, right. And he was alive in the trunk. Um, yeah. Uh, so I, I don't, it's not good reason, um, but it is reason to doubt that he's actually alive. Yeah. I, as what I'm saying is that I'm, I'm suspicious of the firm conclusion that he's alive. The, so because... The things that led us to think that he might be alive, the phone calls and the gifts were shown to be just like the the fuckery of what's his name to Jordan Scott Noel. Like, yeah, yeah Scott we haven't. Knowles. Oh, by the we, way, we Scott Knowles yeah. like was sending her the gifts and tried to kill her, and right. she's trying. And Joanna Wellick, like, definitely like in some ways the best character <laughs> show Amazing. is going to try to frame him, and we haven't even gotten to. And that it's unclear. It's unclear to me what role Joanna is really playing in this. If he's if he's been dead the whole time. But yeah. but one reason we were given to think that he might still be alive w- was that, and that was shown to be not him at all. Um, the then there's the the possibility that we've already seen that Mr. Robot can cause serious damage to Elliot, um, so so Elliot can definitely harm himself. And then there is what is a kooky, like I think it was posted on Reddit as a joke. It actually is the kind of thing that Sam Esmail might really have done on purpose. So the the and I think I told you this that um, even though this has happened before, it seemed odd to me that Tyrell was so quiet during the whole argument where Mister Robot is yelling um, yeah. to his to Elliot and they're having this fight. Tyrell is just like calmly typing. Um, so that that. <laughs> I know it can ha- we've seen that happen but it left me a little suspicious. But then then the uh <laughs> if you look at what what Tyrell is running on the computer he's running a uh, gnome desktop environment. It's a, a particular layer of Linux that that harkens, Linux. harkens back to that first time that Elliot and and Tyrell meet. And Tyrell says, I see you're running GNOME. And he says, me, I'm a KDE man myself. So those are two different desktop environments. Uh. And if it were Tyrell, he ought to be running KDE. He said that he runs KDE, but no, that computer has GNOME. Except that he now worships Elliot. Yeah, so maybe, maybe. That's a that's a sign of how much he worships Elliot. That it he's would willing to be, run known for some Linux people that would be akin to you changing your to become a Yankees fan um, <laughs> because you really liked somebody. Um, but yeah, that that's that's uh, like I'll end this the weeds. Well, so every once in a while throughout the history of this podcast, and we're gonna have our hundredth episode soon <laughs> you come out with something <laughs> like your unforgiven god <laughs> analogy you just come like with your a game like it's... you're capable of these flights of genius <laughs> to the point where it does make me question like who's the other Dave? <laughs> the one that you know like just says whatever like liberal facebook wants him to say and, yeah and, this the are social there two different word. people because this is uh, this is a str- this is a real. Is that why I don't remember these episodes? <laughs> yes, exactly. Mind awake, no. Mind asleep, body asleep is my mantra. <laughs> There's a Mister Mister P. Uh, another way of saying what you're saying is that uh, I am s- mediocre through large, vast portions <laughs> of my life. <laughs>
<laughs> Which I, no, but I you reach heights that I can't imagine. Like I needed to not. I need. I've been looking all around me. I needed to look above me. I, I love. Oh, him. Nice. I'm we gotta end. We gotta end there. That's nice. Yeah. Perfect. I love it. <laughs> All right, join us next time for our hundredth episode. Um, very bad. Has Play no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. Just a very bad wizard.